Hello, welcome to the East London Radio Private Lives Podcast. This is Paul Robinson. And on today's show, we're honoured to meet two veterans of the music business who've been enthralling audiences for decades. Coincidentally, both were born in the same year, 1935, but one is from Detroit, USA, the other from Lancashire, here in the UK. Barry Mason is one of our most prolific and successful songwriters, with a succession of chart hits and multiple awards, including the Songwriters Oscar, the Ivor Novello Award. His songs have been recorded by Tom Jones, David Essex, Petula Clark, Barbara Streisand, The Fortunes, Engelbert Humperdinck, The Drifters and Elvis Presley. We met up at his West London apartment. I asked him whether from childhood he always wanted to be a songwriter. No, Paul. I wanted to be a, a singer originally, but um, I never just didn't. I didn't have any self-confidence. And when I do my one-man shows now and sing, it's because I'm I'm there as a writer, so there's no pressure on me as a singer. But you were also an actor in your early days, and you had some quite interesting experiences. Yes, I was uh, I living in America, living in Hollywood, actually, and I came back, tried showbiz one more time in London, and uh, still wanted to be an actor. I did an audition for the Royal Court Theatre, and... Uh, it was an awful audition. I came home and told my mother, she said, well, why don't you go again? I said, you can't go again, mother. And this is the West End of London. You can't. Uh, she said, yes, and take an apple. Anyway, I phoned up again and I did have a second audition and I didn't eat the apple. I just carried the apple. I ended up getting a part of the understudy to the lead of the play who happened to be Albert Finney in his first ever major play. So that was great fun. And uh, I'd never have done that without my mother. And I, But Albert Finney was the cause of me giving up songwriting, really, because one lunchtime I was sitting in the back of the theatre and uh, unbeknownst to him and the director, I was uh, eating my, my lunch and I saw him and the director doing a private rehearsal and I saw Albert, uh, this natural actor, doing his job and I realised I just wasn't good enough for that. And it wasn't even a sad decision. I just thought, no, Barry, this is not the life for you. And why the apple? The apple was to give me something to do with my hands. You know, if you've ever, I don't know if you've ever, most people try to be an actor sometime in their life and you don't know what to do with your hands. You sort of, they suddenly become, you're very conscious of them. Just holding the apple, it just gave me something to do. What about Albert Finney? He was a big name in his day. What was he like? He was a, I'm just a nice northern lad, same as me. And uh, he got me a part in the movie that followed this uh, Saturday night and Sunday morning. And uh, I, if ever anybody sees that film, I'm singing in the club in the background. I'm singing, What Do You Want If You Don't Want Money? Uh, the Adam Faith song written by Johnny Worth, I think. And uh, that's me. And that was because of Albert. Funny thing was, I got he went his way and I went mine. He became a famous actor and I was reasonably successful as a songwriter. And we met years later when a friend of mine organised a golf game without telling me. And uh, the surprise member of the foursome was Albert Finney. And I got chance to, to thank him uh, for, for doing me the favour in the old days. What a wonderful reunion. When you decided acting wasn't for you, it must have been tough to come to terms with that. Well... In, 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 in theory, yes, but in this particular case, he was just so good that it didn't make me feel like I was a failure. I thought, no, I'm, you know, I, I just, I could never do, get the atmosphere and the, 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 the moment I saw 
on that stage with the famous director there, Lindsay Anderson, and I just saw privately what a how great he was at his job. So how did the songwriting career start? Well, uh, I, I managed an artist called Tommy Bruce, and uh, that wasn't his real name. I christened him Tommy Bruce, and he had one hit. He had a, a one-hit wonder. I lent him my little band that I had, a little trio, and uh, I said, you should... you got a funny voice. I said, you should record, because you've got that gra- a gravelly sort of pop voice. And uh, he recorded Ain't Misbehaving and he didn't know what to do with it. So I went to EMI and got him a record contract. And suddenly he said, look, I need a manager. And I said, well, I can't manage. Well, I need somebody. So, well, I'll try. So I became his manager and uh, he had a hit with his first record. And then he couldn't get any more hits. And in desperation, I'm lying in bed one night. I thought, well, maybe I can write a song. And I thought of a little song in bed and remembered it the next day and uh made a demo of it and it became a B-side for Tommy. It wasn't good enough for an A-side, but it became a B-side and I'd written my first song and I thought, hmm, I quite like doing this. It gave you confidence? Yes, it gave me confidence because I heard it recorded and uh, I thought, that that doesn't sound too bad. And uh, from then on, I began writing with, I had a small hit with with the group leader whose name was Peter Green, who became Daniel Boone. And uh, I had a little hit went with the Mersey Beats, Don't Turn Around. And, uh, and then after these little nibbles, I met Les. And we then had wrote quite a few songs together. And then suddenly we had a hit song with Here It Comes Again by that wonderful group, The Fortunes. So, Barry, you had your hit. How did it feel? Oh, wonderful, wonderful. Oh, I've got to tell you a story, too, about that. I've got my first hit. I never. I'm born in Wigan and uh, uh, brought up in Lancashire, and uh, I've never thought that I'd end up with any sort of fame. And suddenly, I've got a hit, and I'm in the BBC club, and I had a couple of pints, and I'm feeling no pain because I'm I'm in the dreamland of having a a, a big international hit, and I go in the Lou to do what a man does after a couple of pints and standing beside me doing the same thing is a guy who's whistling the song that I've got at the top of the charts and I've never had this experience before this guy I've never met is whistling a song that I wrote and I couldn't help myself I heard myself saying excuse me that song you're whistling I wrote it he said I thought Les Reed wrote it I said yes I said Les wrote the music and I wrote the words he said I'm not whistling the words that's quite brutal. But did the hit records open doors? Yes, of course it did. Uh, and we met a guy that I'd known some years before when we both broke, was Gordon Mills, who was the genius guy who managed Tom Jones and saw him through his early, his early career. And uh, Gordon, then, when he was manager, he knew me personally and he knew Les personally. So we had an entree into Tom. And uh, hence we could get songs directly to him with Gordon. Nothing would make Gordon let Tom have a song he didn't think was a hit, but at least we, it opened the door. So you were writing for Tom Jones, but you were also writing for Engelbert Humperdinck. Yes, I, I, I suddenly saw, as that young man that I was then, that Gordon Mills had the, the perfect male. He had Tom Jones as the earthy, sexy, down-to-earth, feet on the ground, macho male. 
And he had Engelbert, who was a gentler character and more romantic. And so he had the classic romantic type and the sexual type. When he wanted the song for Tom, he said, I want it sexy, I want a sexy lyric and a romantic one for Engelbert. Hence, when I wrote The Last Waltz, that was the most romantic song I think I've ever written. And at the time I didn't value it, I do now. So Engelbert did that because the, the, it was a marriage between this romantic, lovely voice and this tender song of new love. We're going to play The Last Waltz a bit later, but you've written so many songs for Engelbert. Yes, 82 separate tracks. And for the listener thinking that's impossible, of course, all these great artists, they do song albums all over the world. Some are just for Germany, some might be for Japan, some just come out in America. But the total of recorded songs with Engelbert is 82. He must have been very grateful to you. Well, I'll say one thing for Engelbert, apart from having a, a beautiful voice of his, of, his, of his style, I've never gone to see one of his shows ever, and he's not given me a lovely introduction, which is really nice for a songwriter to have that little moment of fame. He's a great performer, but of course, without songs, he could do nothing. No, they're always saying that without the song, of course, there's no music business, which is a, an unarguable fact. The trouble is that even though the music business now, the, the, the bulk, the actual figure of the music business is the highest it's ever been. The songwriter has never got less. We're going to play A Man Without Love. So tell me about that song. Uh, well, this was an Italian song called Quando Minamore, and I couldn't think of anything as beautiful as that, so I called it Man Without Love. But in those days, uh, well, even today, if a song is a big hit in its own language and the melody's great, then often the publisher in America will get a German song, or the publisher in England will get an Italian song or a German song, and get a local lyric writer to do a lyric in, in, in English. And I'd, I was offered the, the song of Quando Minamore, which had been a big hit in Italy, and uh, I wrote A Man Without Love, which uh, turned out to be very lucky. You're listening to Podcast Radio. Let's go back to Tom Jones, who's become a bit of a national treasure and who's matured through the years, I think, very gracefully. I agree with you totally, Paul. He's the, his, his young, well, his young son, he's only 16 years older than his son, and uh, he is managing Tom beautifully. And the song, the voice, is perfect for Tom because he's, he's matured now. He's an older man and he's not trying to be mutton-dressed as lamb. He's not trying to appear young. He's not dressing in a young way. He's just very smartly dressed gentleman and treated with great respect by the other judges and it's a perfect medium to keep him in the limelight and his voice has hardly changed he still sounds amazing isn't it remarkable yeah just a wonderful voice totally unique and i've never heard it better than when he's singing with a welsh choir before a rugby match and uh, i went down to the wonderful stadium the i don't know what it's called now but that wonderful indoor stadium for the rugby team in in Wales, and uh, they they all sang Delilah, and I looked around at these men, women, and children all singing the lyrics that I wrote all those years ago, and it was a magic moment. 
We'll play Delilah later on Private Lives, but next it's Love Me Tonight, which got into a bit of trouble with the BBC. Oh, yes, I'd forgotten that. They, uh, in the old days, the BBC were very strict and uh, a little old-fashioned, and um, and they suddenly said that this lyric that I wrote, because I'm writing it for Tom, so I'm trying to make it sexy, uh, as opposed to romantic, that it was too sexy for the BBC, and they banned it. And, uh, of course... I was thrilled, and all the Tom Jones fan were thrilled, because once a song is banned, the kids automatically go out of their way to hear it. You mentioned Les Reed earlier, and you wrote a lot of songs with him. Yes, I wrote uh, Delilah with Les and The Last Waltz and a lot of, lot of my songs. And uh, it was just, it was a lucky break for both of us that we just got on some... Pu- a publisher, Stuart Reed, introduced us and... Uh, and the songs just came out, and we we had a fantastic run. Les died last year, so it's very sad for all the music business, and the particularly the SODs, the Society of Distinguished Songwriters, which I'm a founder member. I'm glad that you explained that. Yes, quite. I'm an old SOD, and I'm a King SOD too. We have a King every year. I think you've mentioned before in prior interviews that you weren't close friends, but were very effective professional songwriting colleagues. Yes, we weren't close as uh, as people, but we just, when we met, he'd play a couple of chords on his beautiful piano, and he was a wonderful pianist. I mean, just breathtaking. And he'd play some gentle chords, and I'd, I'd just be transported. I'd just be inspired. How does your songwriting work? What inspires you? Well, as I say, the main inspiration was just him, his, his piano playing. And... Uh, but sometimes we'd start a song, and uh, as it developed, we'd say, oh, this would be great for Tom or for Dave Clock Five or somebody, and then we would tailor it during the writing towards the target. We rarely began a song thinking we want a song for so-and-so, and often when we did, it ended up still being for somebody else. Now, you also wrote songs with Roger Greenway. I, I loved writing with Roger. He, he's had a, a contrasting personal life to mine I've had three divorces and uh, ups and downs of which I'm not proud of at all I just admire people who meet one person and stay together and Roger met Brenda when they were both broken she was a dancer and he was a singer and they've known each other for years and in the midst of one of my tempestuous periods of my life I'd go down to Roger's house in Walton-on-Thames and uh, I'd go inside and immediately the atmosphere of a lovely settled family home would would be apparent and I'd sit down in the kitchen then we'd have a chat first and Brenda would say do you want a cup of tea I'd say oh I'd love one a bit of toast oh thank you very much so we'd have some toast and bread and some toast and jam and some tea and we'd talk and they'd tell me about their life and gradually the atmosphere would be more and more wonderful and I'd relax more than suddenly Roger or I would say well shall we go in the in the sitting room and try and write a song and uh, we say thanks Brenda for the coffee and the, and the tea and the, the toast and we'd wander into the writing room, the living room. I remember saying to Roger, well Rog, we may not write a song or even a hit song but we shall have a lovely day. What's great about that is that the process sounds so ordinary. Well, do you know what? Writing a song is ordinary. People tell me, oh, I I couldn't write a song. And I do lectures sometimes, and I can prove to people that they can write a song. Now, I agree, it's not easy to write a hit song. And and I agree that once you've written a hit song, it's not easy to get it to the person you want it to get to. 
So I try and tell people that uh, that come to the classes or the, the, the coaching session I'm doing or the talk or the show with one man show, I get questions sometimes. And I try to say to, to songwriters, would-be songwriters, if you sit down with your partner, normally you collaborate because it's just easier and quicker. You sit with your partner and you come up at the end of the day with the basis of a little song. Now that could be a hit or it could be a miss. But don't forget, congratulate yourself for doing something that people live and die and never do. And that is create something. You two have sat here today. You're not famous. Nobody may ever sing this song other than you. But you've created a creation. You've written a song. And most people live and die and never do anything as, as magical as that. When you write a song, can you tell if it's a hit? Well, I don't know, but uh, Tony McCauley does. And uh, when we wrote Love Grows, he said, uh, oh, it's going to be a hit, that. And I thought, oh, is it? I hope so. I hope you're right, Tony. I was nearly right, because when we'd written it, we couldn't get anybody else to sing it. In desperation, Tony said, oh, hell, hell we're going to get some. I've got faith in this. So we, we booked session musicians and uh, a session singer to sing it. And it came out, it was finished, we liked it, and as groups were in at the time, we thought we'd got to think of a group name, so we tried to call it Eddie Stone Lighthouse. And they misprinted it when the labels came back to Edison Lighthouse, but we didn't bother having them changed because the group didn't exist anyway. As luck would have it, it was came out and it was an immediate hit. The freak, it's the only time it's ever happened to me that came out Friday, Monday, it's, it's, it's potentially number one. And we got a phone call on Monday from very smart BBC voices saying, could we speak to the manager of Edison Lighthouse, please? And we said, Edison who? As, oh, then we remembered what we'd called the session session musician made record. We said, And I said, well, you're speaking to the manager. Oh, well, we said, we'd like them for Top of the Pops. I thought, oh, my God. And I said, well, that's Thursday, right? No, no, we record it on Wednesday morning. So I took a deep breath and said, OK, they'll be there. Thank you very much. You had two days. Yes, it was Monday night, and it, that was to Wednesday morning. And we immediately phoned our friends and a couple of agents we knew and said, have you got any bands? It was actually friends who found us the band, and it, they came from the West Country, and we auditioned all night and about 4 o'clock in the morning. This band came in shattered and hungry and uh, they did an audition and they were great. And uh, so we said, OK, you're going to be Edison Lighthouse. And we first of all gave them a good breakfast, then later took them around, bought them a van, took them around Carnaby Street to buy some smart clothes all the time. They're learning the song on the cassette in the van. And come Wednesday morning, they arrived and they were announced as Edison Lighthouse and they they did, they did the first ever broadcasting of uh, Love Grows Where My Rosemary Goes. It was a number one record, as you said, Barry. So why didn't they follow it up? Tony McCauley produced another song for them and nothing happened. And then I'm not sure what happened. It's uh, just the way the business, they we people just drift apart. and um, And they never had another hit. Well, it's a great trivia question. This is Private Lives. I'm Paul Robinson. My guest is songwriter Barry Mason. So, Barry, let's now turn to the Drifters. How did you get a song to them? Well, I'm living in America at the time and uh, pretty successful. And 
I'm going to a concert by the Drifters uh, in, in California. And they set the stage up on the beach. And we sat on the boardwalk in Blackpool. We used to call it the promenade. And we sat there on the boardwalk and looked at this wonderful band performing with the background of the, of the Pacific Ocean on a hot summer's night and hanging above them a beautiful, beautiful Pacific moon. And they sang the hits that, that we've all grown up on and that, that were just so wonderful and transforming. And then to make my cup of joy totally full, they'd played the song that Roger and I had written for them called There Goes My First Love. That must have been a magical moment. I never got over it. I never, I never get over it. That a little few hours with a friend, suddenly it's 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 being performed to millions of people. And as a songwriter, the the magical thing of being a songwriter, which I don't think anybody else, any other occupation in the world, does, it's it puts you in touching distance. In fact, you have touched the lives of people all over the world. They never met you. They don't know you exist. They will never will know you exist. But you've written that little song that you're sitting in a bar in Beirut or in Paris or in Tokyo and the musician or musicians will suddenly play or the radio will suddenly play one of your songs. And it, it's a miracle that I, I never get tired of experiencing. Let's now do a handbrake turn from the Drifters to... Des O'Connor, who was actually a good singer, a great chat show host, and you forget just how big he was in his day. Yes, he was a huge star. One of the funniest men I've ever seen. I went to see his, his live show, and he did, I must have done an hour and a half, and it was fantastic. He just, he had the audience in the palm of his hand, so quick, so funny, and clean. And everything was good for a family, which was... Uh, which was made it wonderful for the holiday makers. The whole family would go and see his show. And uh, when I went to see his show in Great Yarmouth, it was the, when, I, when I first met him. Afterwards, he took me out for dinner with his his wife then, and we chatted, and I got to know him and thought of what he was looking for. And I wrote a song for him by accident. Uh, I was in the pub, the White Lion at the end of Denmark Street, where all our business was done. Denmark Street had every major publisher in the world and teams of songwriters would go from office to office during the day, play our demos to the publisher and if he liked them he'd give us money to make a demo. We'd play the song to the publisher and if he liked the song he'd give us money to go across the road to Regent Sound, a little recording studio where we'd pay £5 per hour, spend one hour with the piano, voice demo, take it back to him, the song would be technically published and then he supposedly or she would help, they're supposed to fix the records, often we fixed it. And uh, this particular time I'm in the charts and at the end of the day there was a truce in Denmark Street where publishers and writers and would-be songwriters and would-be singers met at the White Lion for a beer. And this guy is pestering me to, for me to write a song with him because I'm hot at the moment, and as he's talking to me, my publisher catches my eye, calls me over and said, look, don't stick with that guy, he'll drive you crazy. He's an alcoholic, he used to be a superstar writer, but now he's just a 
frankly, a nuisance and he'll drive you mad. I went back to this guy, talked to him, and he asked him what songs he'd written. I felt sorry for him. And he just was a, a good guy and he was dead keen to write a song that I'm top of the world because I'm hot at the moment. And he said, I've written the song South of the Border, which was the first song I ever learned as a little kid. So anyway, to cut a long story short, we left the White Lion pub, walked down Denmark Street and found an office still open. And I can see we this little upright piano and a lamp on top of it. And this guy was called Michael Carr, sat down and, and played the beginning of the idea for this song, which we call One, Two, Three O'Leary. The song was his idea and uh, came from a, a, a game they played in Ireland for the kids, a game of sort of hopscotch, where they sang One, Two, Three O'Leary. And uh, we wrote the song, became a smash for Des O'Connor. And sadly, Michael died before he could know that he was back 20 years later, number one in the charts. So let's turn to musicals now and American heroes. Everybody's ambition in this world is to write songs for a musical. And, uh, and I'm, I was no exception. And I've written quite a few, co-written quite a few, and uh, with have open, run a bit and closed. And, and this was going to be the best one. It was called American Heroes. And my manager then was Mark McCormack, the famous sports manager. And he found this American, he loved the music we'd written. He found this American angel, multimillionaire, who said he would put the show on. So he paid for us to go to New York, where we put on a huge workshop. It cost $250,000 in 1982. The fortune ran it for four weeks with an invited audience every day and a wonderful process of doing it in front of an audience. You realize where the flaws are with a live audience. Suddenly the show comes to life. The good bits, you can see them, the bad bits, you can see them. And you cut and edit and rewrite and sit up half the night doing it. Next day, this brilliant cast come in, learn the new words, learn the changes. And next night, the improved change version goes on. And the show is looking so hot. We've got this multi-millionaire backing us and it's we're walking on air. So we're staying in an hotel there. And one night, Don Gould and I, who collaborated over the music and the words, are sitting there watching the news and we're ready to go to the to go to work at the workshop that evening. And on the news, we suddenly see our backer, our angel, with two members of the FBI and a suitcase full of cocaine. On the CBS News, it was John DeLorean, our backer, the man who invented the DMC gullwing motor car that they built in Ireland, which was featured in that film, Back to the Future. And we watched our money man getting arrested and... The whole thing collapsed after that. So it never happened? No, it never happened. People have come along and said, we're going to do it. And uh, we had somebody interested at the beginning of the year. And now this pandemic has come. Funny thing is, it was written about famous people ending up in hell with the devil. And you thought, how can these famous, wonderful people that have done so much for, the, for, for, for mankind be in, in hell? And of course, because they, they were all human. They've all had something to be guilty about. Anyway, they're rescued from hell in the American heroes, and uh, they're still heroes, but they're human beings. You've had songs recorded by a wonderful array of artists, but possibly none bigger than Elvis Presley. 
Yeah, I must say before I do, it wasn't a big hit. It was on an album ready to rock. But just having Elvis sing one of my songs was just, I cannot tell you the the joy of it, the, the wonderful thing of it. And I know where I was when Elvis died. And people asked me the question about, about 9-11 and about uh, John F. Kennedy and different things. Uh, Winston Churchill, uh, but I, I don't know where I was in those huge events in history, but... I know exactly where I was when Elvis died. I was in Warner Brothers on Sunset Boulevard and uh, suddenly said, Elvis is dead. And it, I couldn't believe it. It was, I think all young people was, were, were bereft. It was, he'd such a fantastic influence on, on, on the young people of, the, of that day. No, we all remember where we were on August the 16th, 1977. So tell me about the song itself, Girl of Mine. Oh, I love Girl of Mine. It's a really romantic song for him. And uh, it's about a guy who's not, he's been a bit naughty in his life and he's, he's, a, he's out performing and he comes back and, he, and his girlfriend never, never desert, never leaves him. She just loves him despite everything. And he comes home one night and she's asleep and he sings about her head upon the pillow and uh, thinks about how lucky he is to have this beautiful woman in his life. A little story in, in this that I forgot to tell you. I was working in Nashville. We met lots of Americans in Nashville. In those days, an Englishman was a, a, a novelty. And this very famous producer called Billy Sherrill was quite frank with me one day when he met me. He said, look, he said, I'm just telling you now. He said, you've got no chance of writing a song in Nashville, you got to live in Nashville. You're an English guy, fine, but you, but you can't understand the philosophy of the country music in Nashville. And quite frankly, you got no chance of getting a hit. And that was number one with Elvis. So what does he know? You've won a lot of awards over the years, including the Ivor Novello Award. As a songwriter, do they mean a lot to you? Yes, I think it's um, it's a wonderful thing. A writer is doesn't get in the limelight. But it's fine that he doesn't, because the performer is the point of the spear. The performer is the guy that goes out, and if it doesn't, if his song isn't a hit, they go, "Oh, his last song was a hit. This is a miss." A writer can write fifty songs come out, and only a couple of them will be hits. But people don't say to him, "Oh, those are all misses," because they don't know. So we're we're sheltered from the from the burning glare of success. So I don't mind being a writer, and I don't expect to have recognition, but awards are lovely to get. And the Ivor Novello Award, which is the Oscar of British music, uh, is, is just such a wonderful thing for me. We're going to play next two of your biggest songs, starting with The Last Waltz, recorded by Engelbert Humperdinck. Yes, I was a, as a boy, I was a pimply-faced stammerer i uh, anybody listening who's got who stammers is i've got my sympathy and remember to breathe that's what i was told i'm speaking so quickly now and i i'm trying to slow down for this broadcast i normally speak very quickly and nervously and that's the residue that was left of my stammer anyway so i'm living in blackpool and um, i didn't have a particularly happy childhood and the the big spot of my week was Saturday night going dancing and we'd go to the Winter Gardens Ballroom. The boys would stand on one side, the girls would stand on the other and we'd look across at these beautiful creatures all dressed up and 
these marvellous, amazing creatures who we never met as normal people. We only met them at parties or dances and pluck up courage to ask them to dance. And finally, I'd, I'd get the courage to walk across this huge dance floor at the Winter Gardens. They used to break after three songs and we'd retreat to our opposing camps and the, we'd stagger across this beautiful huge dance floor to ask this girl for a dance and in those days the movie stars were the heroes Hollywood movie stars and my favorite movie star was Robert Mitchum and as I approached this girl I thought I said to her excuse me could I have the pleasure of this dance as Robert Mitchum would say instead I came out with a stammering anyway she'd get the message and maybe she'd dance with me and and then I'd say can I take you home, perhaps? And she'd say, yes. And if, well, I'd celebrate if she said yes. And then I'd wait outside, hoping she would arrive and wouldn't just say yes to get rid of me. And But she'd arrive. And then I'd say, where, where are you staying? Where's your boarding house? She'd say, oh, it's in St. Anne's. That's seven miles south. But I didn't care because it meant I'd be with her for half an hour or 45 minutes. So we'd walk along after about four miles and have the courage to hold her hand. And the excitement of that, and then when I got finally to where she's staying, I'd say, can I see you tomorrow? And if she said, yes, my heart would leap, and I'd give her a chaste kiss on the cheek if I was lucky. And then I'd turn to walk back up north, back against a, a howling wind and the rain parallel to the ground. And my DA is long gone and my cheap suit is ruined, but I don't care because I'm in love. And I thought that was a reflection then of the times when we wrote The Last Waltz. And years later, when I look back on it, it was a perfect reflection of the young boys and girls of the day and their embarrassing, awkward attempts and experiences of first love. It's just fantastic. It was, of course, it's played less now because it was, of course, the most played live record in Britain at the time for several years because every dance finished with the last waltz. People who don't know, the younger people, the, the, the waltz was a popular dance and at the end of any dance they'd say, take your partner to the last waltz and they'd play the waltz of the day, a request. And so to call a song the last waltz was a, a big stroke of luck. And a big hit too. And another big song for you is Delilah. Now, what a song that is. The thing that I think has made it last, apart from the Welsh using it as a second national anthem, for which I'm thrilled. I love sport and I love rugby. And uh, so to, to hear it played before every rugby match is wonderful. But I think there's one of the secrets is it's a story song, which makes it more timeless. It's a melodramatic story. with It's a weird lyric, a wild lyric I know about poor guy that kills for love I, I think that's one of the reasons not the subject but the fact it was a story that makes it go and it was in it was inspired by Jezebel a song by Frankie Lane which when I lived in Blackpool I'd hear played on the promenade in all the jukeboxes and that was my first favorite record my first pop record that I that that I really loved as a child and uh Strange enough, when I that I should come to write the modern equivalent of that lyric, because that was about Jezebel, another naughty girl, and uh, a sad ending in it, and uh, and Delilah's the same. 
The song's been covered by many artists, but somehow you just can't beat Tom Jones' version of it. Yes, that's a very interesting point, that, Paul. Great hits has to be a marriage. The song enough isn't enough on its own. You get the singer, the song, and the arrangement too. All these things have to fall into place. Engelbert is perfect for The Last Waltz. Tom Jones is perfect for Delilah. Very few people cover Delilah because Tom is the is the iconic version. I often think that the 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 band, the Gypsy Kings, they could do a version of Delilah because they they change the rhythm to rum chicka chicka ching chicka chicka. Whereas Les did the genius of making the opening bars equal bump 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 with no rhythm, which immediately you hear that you think ah oh, Delilah. Now the Gypsy Kings, mm, that could be a fun future project. Well, it could be, yes, quite. Let's do it together. We must. So, Barry, before we go, can I say it's been a total pleasure. Thank you so much. And we must play Tom Jones singing Delilah. I'd love to play Delilah. And can I thank you for having me on this show? I think it's a lovely idea. I'd like to thank anybody listening who's bought it or listened to it and liked it. From the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for making Delilah the high spot of my life. The fantastic Barry Mason. And what amazing humility after so many years of huge success. And if the Gypsy Kings management are listening, please expect a phone call. My second guest on the pod today is Duke Fakir, one of the founding members of the legendary Detroit quartet, The Four Tops. The group's partnership with Holland Dozier Holland, the in-house songwriting and production team at Motown Records, led to a hugely successful run of hit albums and singles worldwide. The band had been together for four decades. I put it to Duke Fakir when he joined me on the phone that he must be very proud of what the Four Tops have achieved. I'm very proud and humbly uh, grateful that I'm still able to be on stage and to perform at a level that's still acceptable. At my age and for the length of time that I've been doing this, I'm more than proud and I'm blessed, you know, and it's incredible that I can still do partially what I did as a young kid, you know, uh, but still professionally enough that it's more than acceptable. So, yes, I'm very proud and humbly so. It sounds like you really enjoy oh, performing. Let me be very honest with you. If I did not enjoy this, there's no way in the world that I could do it, you know. But I totally enjoy it. I enjoy the camaraderie that we have with our crew, you know, with the guys that travel with us, and the stage presence, which it, to me is, is probably the easiest part of, of what I do now. You know, the moving around, the traveling, and the different things that take to get to the stage are probably more uh, strenuous than actually being on stage being on stage is the easiest and the truly love part of what I'm doing. Uh, being on stage is just always just a wonderful thing. You know, to constantly be accepted and to be loved everywhere you, everywhere you go. Some places you feel it a little more than others, uh, like we do at the UK. Uh, but everywhere it is totally, it's just totally acceptable. Uh, people just show the love after all these years. And I, I think that part of the audience must be the children, uh, the, the kids and relatives of the original record buyers, because the audience is not uh, totally at the age that the, you know <laughs> that we were selling records. And it really has to be those, which is, uh, that's a great compliment. Uh, so we're 
I'm very grateful and, and very, very humbly so that I can carry on and, and keep that legacy going from what my co-partners created, you know, Obi, Levi, and Lawrence. Worked very, worked very hard. I missed them tremendously. They worked very hard, and I feel obligated. I feel like that is my destiny: is to carry on that wonderful legacy that they have all that they've left for me to uh, to journey on. You know, it's, it's quite a carpet to ride on. So, Duke, let's go back to the very beginning of the group and your days as a student at Pershing High School in Detroit. Yeah, well, Levi and I, yeah, we were very, very close. In fact, at that time, during my graduation year, Levi and I, he, he, he moved in with me. We were, you know, we just were great friends, and we enjoyed uh, play singing with each other. Uh, back in those days, we had different semesters. Uh, you know, you could uh, a semester ended in January and in June, and I graduated in uh, January of 1954. And we were at basically invited to this graduation party by this group of uh, beautiful young ladies called the Shahrazad, and they invited Levi and I, to, you know, because we we sang at all the events at school and all of that. Uh, and we decided to add two other guys because it was just so many beautiful uh, birds to speak back then. Uh, that we say, well, you know, I, I think these. You know, we need to have a whole group to contend with all these beautiful women there. And we did. And they were two guys that we'd been known for a while. And we knew they could sing very well. And we knew they were good with the young ladies as well. Uh, that was Obi Benson, Obi, uh, Rinaldo Obi Benson and Lawrence Payton. Lawrence Payton, we used to listen to his family or from cousins and all on, on his porch. They made music every day. Church music, gospel music, R&B music, uh, pop music. You know, they would just sit on the porch, play guitars, and, and sing. They were a very musical family. Uh, so we uh, we decided to just bring these uh, two guys along with us. And we sang so well together without even a rehearsal until uh, we felt like, wow, this is special. And so right then we said, well, let's start this as a group. And so we did. But, of course, we still finished the night doing what we came there for. Uh, we had a wonderful time with the young lady. My guest is Duke Fakir. And as he explains, the original members of the group were very close friends. But that's part of what our legacy is about. The love that we had for each other. Uh, the enjoyment that we had working together. And it's four different, really, guys. Four different personalities. Uh, if, if you saw us apart, you would never think that we could have stayed together, working together, living together, uh, raising families together, and making beautiful music together. Uh, you, you know, if you saw us apart back then, you, you would never think that we could have been together all that long. So evidently it was the love of music, what we created with each other while we were together, was something very special. And we realized that. We realized that from the very beginning. And we made we made a pact near the beginning that this was good enough for each one of us that we would do this forever if we could. And thank God 
that's exactly what has happened. You're delivering on the dream in, in a big, big, big way. I mean, when you started, you weren't the four tops, you were the four Ames. And the story goes, you changed your name to avoid confusion with the Ames brothers. Is that story true? That story is absolutely true. Uh, in 1956, we had our first recording uh, session with uh, Chess Records. And just before we were about to record, uh, the Chess Brothers came and said, well, I realize you guys will have to change your name because the four Ames Brothers are very popular. Now, we didn't really want to. We said, well, people will know the difference, blah, blah, blah. He said, no, you have to do that. You have to change your name. So right then and there, we talked about it. And I'm going to ask why. Why did we call ourselves the four Ames? And we explained to them that we were... We wanted our name to signify what we were doing, what we were trying to do. You know, we were shooting for the stars. We wanted to be on the top. You know, we wanted to be one of the greatest groups around. We knew we could sing as well as any group and so forth. So once somebody mentioned, said, well, what about the four tops? Everybody, we stopped and looked. We said, that sounds great. <laughs> That's it. It was and that easy. That was it, from that. it was that easy. Yeah. And just like that. Yeah. Let's, let's go back to those days of Chess Records, because when you joined Chess, I mean, it was a legendary record label now, of course, in Detroit, um, in Michigan Avenue. But the people who went through the doors, I mean, apart from superstars like the Four Tops, we had Chuck Berry, Bo Diddley, the Rolling Stones, Etta James. I mean, Chess had an amazing roster of artists. Oh, absolutely. You know, and we thought that we would become <laughs> just as popular as some of those. But of course, our, our records did not hit, and it was the reason why. Now that I look back, as we look back, you know that we we every day all knew us for being able to sing a, a multitude of, of types of songs. So the songs that was written for us then was not really geared to our best delivery. They were not, you know, real strong R and B, and they were not really strong pop. Uh, it was like on the fence type of songs. Uh, decent songs, but they were not hit kind of records for us. Uh, which we realized after we recorded and listened, we said, well, you know, this, does, this doesn't seem to fit us completely. It doesn't bring out the best in us. Uh, after we went to Chess, we went to Columbia. I think that's the name of that uh, record company. You know, as I get old, I forget a lot. Uh, we came, we went over there with, uh, when Arisa went and, in the early 60s, um, recorded four songs, the same type of deal. It, and if those songs, one of those songs was hit, we would get a big record deal. But ours didn't, and uh, Reese stayed on, of course, and made it big over there. And then we went to another record company. So we, we knocked around until we realized that Motown is where we should be. When we saw the Motown review, while we were working in New York, uh, we were recording for Riverside, Riverside Records. And again, those songs were kind of on the fence. But we went and saw this Motown review, and we said, damn, this is where we should be. Because we could really be, you know, a good part of this group. We could put on the show that would be comparable to this, of course, blah, blah, blah. And we were thinking, all we have to do is go across the street instead of going all out, to, out of the city. We could have just went across the street and joined this company. But, and which, it, it happened right, pretty much right after that, that uh, Barry uh, 
So it's on the Tonight Show, uh, which was a very popular show then. They asked us to be on the show because we were working up in the Catskill Mountains in New York, which is, a, you know, a, a great resort. It's almost like Vegas without gambling. But it was a big family resort. And uh, one of the NBC executives were there, and he, he said, wow, I'd like to have you on our TV show. And we, we went, and Barry saw us on that show and said, and he sent one of our friends who was his A&R, his A&R director, Mickey Stevenson. He says, do you know the top pieces? He said, of course I do. He said, can you get in touch with him? Because I'd like to have him on my roster. Well, at that same time, we were, we was begging, our, begging ourselves, how can we get to Motown? How can, how can we do this? And he got in touch with us. We were just delighted, just delighted that, that he did. And we came back to Detroit and walked up. And when we were walking up those steps to hit Bill, we said to ourselves, you know what? We, I think this is a life-changing moment. Remember us saying that to each other? And sure enough, it was, you know. I was so happy that he wanted us. And, you know, it's a long story about signing and all that, but we did and was very happy to to sign with Motown then. Uh, and he gave us the leeway because he wanted us basically to sing old standards and, and music that he knew we could sing well. Uh, he says because he didn't have anyone in his table that could quite do that. And he allowed us to take Mickey Stevenson as our producer and, and, and sing. He said, I want you to record those wonderful standards the way you all do them. Says you can use big band, you know, which we haven't used before. He said you can use rhythm sections, small groups. You can do some live stuff at the Greystone Ballroom, which I've just acquired. This is Barry talking. He says, however you all want to do it, uh, just do me an album of all those mixed ways of, of, of recording and, and let's see how it comes out. And we did that. You know, we had wonderful big band arrangements and great songs and then we had rhythm sections we had great songs a couple of live things we did at the Greystone Ballroom with people involved all that came out very good when we had finished that he says come on let's listen to what we have here he called us into his office and he played some of the songs back after they were mixed down and he we saw a question mark on his face he says fellas he said, this is good stuff, but I can tell it's not really commercial enough. This is going to have to do something different. Well, you know, when he said that, we were really shattered, you know, because uh, we thought that, you know, we could be one of the only groups at Motown that could put out those those kind of songs. And then we did them in, a, in a, a very nice way. And it was just us. We weren't trying to, trying to be different or trying to be anything it was just the way that we sang you know we we realized that we could sing those songs as well as almost anyone on white black green it didn't matter we just were capable of doing that as young men and we loved doing it uh, but we could do all kinds of genres of songs uh, so but we were a little shattered at that point and mm-hmm. after so he says I know what I'll do he said I want you to meet these three young uh, writers, producers, Holland, Doge, and Holland. Just, I think they can do something for you guys. Because as good as you are, sir, 
I'm sure we could come up with some hits. And sure enough, I mean, we met them. We were very happy with them. You know, we had heard about them. They had heard about us. They were excited. It said, well, you know, we're going to see what we can do. We think we can come up with some things. So we became great friends. And after a couple of months, sure enough, they came up with Baby, I Need Your Love. And that was the beginning of a wonderful run with some of the, to us, some of the greatest writers and producers that we that we come in contact with. Or they were the best in the world at that time to me. For writers, producers, they were great tailors of music, I call them. Because they could work with about four tops for about a week on a couple of songs. The next week they would be with Martha and the Vandellas. The next week they would be with Junior Walker. And they were making hits. They were tailoring these hits for all these different types of uh, singers, uh, you know, performers. And uh, I just thought that was incredible. They were very, very talented. And wow. And they just knew how to. They just knew how to make hits. <laughs> they certainly, they certainly did. I mean, "Baby, I Need Your Love," and as you say, it was the first big hit. It was a, a top eleven hit in the U.S. and and that's as you say, it was the start of a big run. Then with Holland, Dozy Holland. I, I can never explain to you the great thrill of of having your first hit record, especially after being in the business for nine years and you know making wonderfully steps in the business and, and doing all kind of incredible things but still not getting to the multitude of, you know, of, of people and having a hit record that you hear on the radio daily. That is such an incredible first feeling. It's better than anything first that I've ever done. <laughs> uh, it's just incredible. It makes you feel, wow, it's all been worthwhile. And, you know, and you always had the feeling, wow, and this is just the beginning of this, you know, we felt that. We said, wow. And it was just incredible. We were so excited. You know, our hearts were just jumping out of our bodies, you know. Uh, we talked to each other on the phone and said, wow, man, let's get together and start putting together a show because we've got to be now performing in front of thousands of people for all the time. We just fortunately had good stage presence. We had we looked great at the uh, when we were young. We knew how to dress well. Uh, we had this. There was a thing that we had about show business. We said once you hit the stage, if you can have people say, "Ah," that's just just like that, and like, "Wow, look at them!" Uh, then you're way ahead of the game. And then if you can sing well, on top of that, then you've got a great chance of uh, doing things. And, and all those years that we traveled and worked in production shows before Motown and, and working with great artists, we, we found out that how to put a show together that that would uh, make people enjoy it, or maybe just a little more. And fortunately enough, it's carried us this far. Mm. And it's a long way, a long way down the road from the beginning. August 1966, and another milestone for the Four Tops, with their first number one song in both the U.S. and the U.K., Reach Out, I'll Be There. Duke Fakir tells the story. What's so incredible about that song is when Barry called us in the office to say he was releasing that as a single, we were devastated. We didn't, The way we heard it in his office, we did neither one of the Tops thought that that would be a hit at all. 
And we were almost disgusted that they would pick this song to put out after we had, because we had great momentum, you know, because we had had that Can't Help Myself, which is on the number one in the States for 19 weeks. Uh, mm. And we just didn't think Reach Out would compare it to that. So when they, they released it, and Barry laughed, he says, well, you're going to be surprised. And he says, because this is going to be the greatest hit you've had, blah, blah, blah. So disgustingly, we walked out of that meeting and talked to myself, well, you know, I, don't, I don't know about Barry. I think he's lost it. <laughs> That's what we were saying. That's what we were saying. But when, when I heard it released and on the radio, when I heard it the first time, it hit me. And I was driving from the studio at that time. And that's when I turned my car around and made it back and knocked on Barry's door. The secretary said, oh, he's in a meeting. I said, let me open this door. And I yelled in there, Barry, just do what you do. Don't ask us. Don't confront us. Just do it. He says, this song is a smash. And he just, he laughed. He said, I told you. <laughs> uh, so it, it was, that was great. And that, sure enough, reached out to me. It was number one in, in many countries. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep doing it forever. And thank you very much for joining us. Well, I've already done it forever. I'm going to try to do it all over time now. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> God bless you. Thank you so much. And since we recorded that interview, the Four Tops UK tour dates have been confirmed for 2021 as follows. October the 1st, Motor Point Arena, Cardiff. October the 2nd, MS Bank Arena, Liverpool. October the 4th, First Direct Arena, Leeds. 5th of October, the AO Arena, Manchester. October the 6th, Utilita Arena, Birmingham. October the 9th, Motor Point Arena, Nottingham. 10th of October, the O2 in London. October the 11th, the Bournemouth International Centre. And they'll be supported, by the way, by The Temptations and Odyssey. Now, that's quite a gig. Thanks to The Temptations, Duke Fakir, and also to British songwriter Barry Mason, two incredibly talented guests, together representing more than 170 years of wonderful experience. This has been the Private Lives Podcast from East London Radio. Thank you very much for listening. I'm Paul Robinson. Keep listening to Podcast Radio for more Private Lives very soon. Private Lives with Paul Robinson on East London Radio. Welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute. What's the name of that podcast? That's Axe to Grind. uh, And right now you're going to be getting a little, little taste of it right down to the shaky microphone and all. And my name's Bob. And my name's Patrick. And usually we're joined by Tom. Tom's the best. Tom has a real grown-up job that requires him to be at work. But we talk about decidedly not-so-grown-up things like... Hardcore music and things that people that like hardcore music tend to like. So that could be the latest shows, uh, revisiting classic material, talking about the new classics... Um, all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from a niche music podcast that, that you either love, want to love, or hate. Yeah, imagine all the emotions that you have towards a genre that, that uh, has impacted your life uh, and then condense them down to an hour to two hours a week. So triangulate your speakers, think about jumping off the bed, singing along, dancing like an idiot, and listen to Axe Grind Podcast.